I'd seen 15 years, but felt twice that. Born in a tank, bred for war, I'd known little more than the violence of the so-called Clone Wars. I never understood this. My brothers didn't start the war. We didn't ask for it. We were merely the useful tools of so many hands. After three years of fighting, I betrayed my Jedi commander. General Suresh bravely and honorably led my squad on more missions than I could count. We'd finally tracked down Lord Hain the leader of a confederate extremist group called the Hidden Sect. As we closed on him, we received a calm. Execute Order 66. We murdered the Jedi. The clone army was being discharged. Three years of unquestioned orders, three years of combat, three years of sacrificing myself for a war I had no stake in. After my complicity in the murder of my Jedi General Suresh, the scales fell from my eyes. Finally, I could see the machinations of the Emperor. I could see the chessboard. I recognized myself as a pawn. Not waiting for my discharge order, or worse, my decommission, I fled. I filled a bag with as much useful equipment as I could find. Grenades, blasters, spare power cells, comms, stim packs, as much as I could fit. I forged an order for my CO to send me in a small shuttle to scout a nearby moon. I'm not much of a pilot, but I couldn't trust an Imperial astromech to not report my route. I made for the moon, but passed behind it and flew in a heavily trafficked trade route aways. That's about when I made the first of many mistakes. I landed on a planet I knew next to nothing about, never actually caught the name. I was never much for underworld dealings, hardly had the opportunity, but I knew to speak with the shipyard foreman, spend some extra credits to keep my stolen ship off the manifest. I found a small apartment, paid for two weeks up front, I paid extra to keep my name off the contract. It only took to nightfall to realize I didn't really have a plan, or anything resembling a plan. I spent so much time trying to get here, or anywhere, it hadn't even crossed my mind what the next step might be. Who am I without my brothers? Who am I without war? Who am I with freedom? Alone. 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 The next morning, I began scouting the city Skandara, a surprisingly populated city made of concrete and steel, situated on the outskirts of a forest. If there was an Imperial presence, I didn't spot it. I spent the next week laying low, making infrequent and irregular rounds through the city without my armor, senses trained for Imperials and scoundrels. Still no imps in sight. From my apartment, I watched and listened. When a man is careful, quiet, he can learn much. When a man installs a small comm to a utility pole, he can learn much more. When I wasn't making rounds through the city, I listened. The good news? This was a hub of scum and villainy. Every sixth person was in the middle of a less-than-legal job. Smuggling, theft, assassination. It was unlikely I would be sold out to the Empire, lest they bring attention to themselves. The bad news? This was a hub of scum and villainy. It was unlikely I'd find anyone willing to work with the poster boy for the army. All the same, my credits were running low. It was time to see about finding myself a job. I needed to be careful, though. I spent my whole life in the service, and while that would often necessitate the assistance of those who were loyal only to their syndicate, I still knew precious little of their inner workings. With a small blaster pistol tucked in my belt and covered by a sun-beaten poncho, I entered a dingy and poorly kept cantina by the name of Farah's. I'd seen a number of unsavory types enter and exit in short durations. That was a good lead that the cantina was home to frequent dealings. There was a smattering of mostly humans and some more exotic aliens I wasn't familiar with. I made my way to the bar. 
A large, grey, humanoid alien kept the bar and raised an eye to me. Maybe she wasn't used to unfamiliar faces. Or maybe my face was too familiar. Corellian whiskey, I told the barkeep who studied me closely before turning to the bar back and pouring the amber into a dusty glass. We don't want trouble here. She was talking to me, but it was a clear warning to everyone around. I've got none to bring. Retired, I told her. I turned to face the patrons, all eyes on me. Of course it wouldn't be this easy. A smarter clone would have known this. Apologies, I said to no one in particular. I left Ferris, headed for my apartment, but I made a number of unnecessary turns and I doubled back on my tracks a few times. A good tale would have tracked me easily, but any simple opportunist would have been thrown off. I decided I would not leave the apartment again for a few days. Three nights later, there's a quiet knock at my door. I grabbed my blaster rifle, set it to stun, and slowly crept to the door. Blaster trained ahead of me, I used my foot to engage the control, and the door slid up. A human squealed and immediately threw their hands in the air, ensuring they're not a threat. Dank Farrick, it was the landlord. I set my blaster on the counter of the kitchenette. Apologies, sir, I thought you might be someone else. The landlord lowered their hands and took a more casual but still guarded stance. No kidding? What kind of trouble you in anyway? You know what? Don't answer that. Less I know, the better. Your contract's up. Be another 300 credits if you want to stay. Otherwise, I gotta get you out here by noon tomorrow. Had it really been two weeks already, I hadn't accomplished anything. I was almost out of credits. Tried not to, but I felt my face tightening into a wince. Of course, sir. My apologies, I told him. Give me just a moment, sir. I left him at the door and made for my pack in the bedroom. I reached into it and pulled a small sack of credits. I knew there was only a hundred in there, but I counted it anyway. I returned to the landlord, waiting patiently at the door. Well, I'm a bit light at the moment, sir, but I've got more credits coming in tomorrow. A bounty capture, but you know the guild is a bit slow to pay. How's about a hundred now, and I'll give you another three hundred by the end of the week. That's an extra hundred for your trouble, sir. The man studied me closely. He pulled the sack from my hands and counted the credits. Hundred credits? I'll give you three days. You follow through, you got another two weeks. If not, though... You're out of here. You understand me, one in a million? I didn't appreciate the jab, but I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. Of course. I'll see you soon, sir. I closed the door and let out a breath I didn't realize I was holding in. I turned around and, damn it, I was staring down the barrel of a blaster pistol. On the other end was a Trandoshan, a lizard folk. He was wearing a weather-beaten duster and a matching wide-brimmed hat. I glanced to my left, the blaster on the kitchenette. Don't even think about it, Barrelborn. I raised my hands above my head. Well, what seems to be the problem? I asked. He must have come through a window while I was dealing with the landlord. What did he want, though? Was he working for the Empire to bring me in or put me down? I saw you in Farah's. What were you doing there? I was there for a drink, friend, I said. I didn't have any power here. I'd be switzly and cheese before I laid a finger on my blaster. You didn't touch your drink. Friend, He spit the last word, mocking my faint civility. Try again. I was looking for a job. I'm sure you heard I'm a bit light on credits at the moment. I'm going to ask you again. What's the problem here? I go where my employer tells me to. The Empire is not strictly welcome here. You bear the face of the Empire, yet you don't seem to bear the agenda. Friend of a friend of a friend says you landed here in a junk imperial ship with no hyperdrive, running on vapors. Spent a pile of credits to uh, keep your arrival private. Well, looks like those credits were poorly spent then. 
You've been awful careful since you got here. Not careful enough, of course, since I'm here. Falask is the name. Where's this going, Falask? I lowered my hands, and he shoved the blaster closer to my face. Easy. He hissed at me. I let my hands settle at my sides and made a show of relaxing a bit. Seems to me, Falask, that if you or your employer thought I was here for the Empire, then I'd already be dead in the ground. You need me for something. I'm sure a smirk found its way to my face. Flask hissed a string of unintelligible curses, then lowered his blaster. Employers got a job for you. Something you'd be especially good at. All right, then. Take me to your employer. The next day, I followed the coordinates the enthusiastic Trandoshan gave me. In the forest, just past the edge of the city, I found an enormous tree that hardly stood out from the hundreds of others surrounding it. Set into the tree was a camouflage door, easy to spot if he knew something was there. I stood before the door, and as I raised my fist to pound against it, the heavy door shot up. I entered the dark opening and wound my way down the tight spiral staircase. A few meters beneath the forest bed, I was met with a large blast door guarded by two heavy bruisers who I'm sure were meant to intimidate me. I'm unarmed, I said, and spread my arms to show. The guards didn't move. A light above the blast door flicked from red to green and the door slid open. As it did, the sound of live music and conversation filled the air. A poorly lit bar and stage came into view. This was a hut den. I walked into the room. Past the performers, I could see the large slug-like form of the disgusting hut who was sure to be my employer. I started for the hut and noticed I was drawing the attention of the room. By the time I made it to the center, the band stopped playing, the dancers stopped dancing, and all of the chatter had stopped. Silence. The hut called to me and laughed. The room laughed with him. I closed the distance between us and made a small bow. I was sure that was what I had heard was protocol when dealing with huts. The hut let out another wet, hearty laugh and motioned towards the performers. The music picked up where it let off, and most of the patrons went back to their dealings. I made eye contact with the hut, and in the steadiest voice I could muster, I introduced myself. Greetings, sir. I'm called Cannon. My apologies if I've made any offense in coming. I'm poorly versed in the customs of the great hut clan. Thank you for meeting with me. The hut growled and ground its yellowed and blackened teeth. Then, with some effort, reached behind its massive body and presented the head of a droid. The round, glowing yellow eyes of the droid's head focused on me and it said, Hello, clone of Jango Fett. You have offended the mistress, Zara Baraza Hut, by misgendering her greatness. Damn it. This couldn't be off to a worse start. Again, I offer my greatest apologies, mistress, Zara Baraza Hut. It seems I'm full of blunders today. The hut stared at me and then began to laugh again. She grumbled some hatis, and the droid's head happily translated. You know patan makdo mistake agana. Mistress Zara Baraza implores you not to make the mistake again, lest you be fed to the beast. I do appreciate your generosity. I've been encouraged to seek you out. You've got a job for me, breaking it into Imperial ship, I guess. The hut grumbled and the droid spoke. Zopatazuna kanavana. Oh ho 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 ho. Indeed, Sir Cannon. Mistress Zara would like to know how you came to this knowledge. Any other job, you'd have any amount of established contacts you could send out. Taking a chance on a clone with no reputation? I've got expertise that you need, and it's not my skill with a blaster. The Hutton droid spoke. Mmm. Mistress Kana. 
Benorana Kanakana. There is a sizable shipment of kyber crystals aboard an Imperial freighter that will soon be transported just past the edge of Hut space, not far from here. You will acquire this shipment. Relations with the Empire are currently quite strained, and we cannot risk any distress beacons being sent. You cannot be seen, and they must not know when or where the kyber was stolen. I crossed my arms and thought for a moment, then resumed eye contact with the hut. Not easy, but doable. Let's talk compensation. I was in full laminate armor, aboard a ship with four others. The Trandoshan, Falask, a Wookiee called Gretzmark, and two humans, Maxton and Wymora. My role at this point was small, but critical. The ship was powered down, berthed on the surface of an asteroid just past the edge of an ion storm. We'd been there for several hours long enough for our drive signature to have dissipated, or at least be masked by the interference of the storm, our intel said an Imperial freighter should be rounding past us at any moment. The pilot, Waimora, chirped into the comms. It's that time, boys. Three, two, one. She fired off two overcharged rounds from the ion cannons, one after the other. The first was meant to knock out the system's shields and main drive. The second would take out the rest of the ship's power and, with any luck, personal devices like scanners. The other three in the back with me piled around the vid screen just in time to see the ion torpedoes plow into the freighter. I took a deep breath and checked my blaster was set to stun for the 30th time. It was time to go. Our engines fired up and we held tight as we raced behind the freighter. If everything went according to plan, the freighter should be down for at least 10 minutes, which they would assume was an effect of the nearby storm. Waimora brought us right behind the cruiser. The rest of us grouped together by the airlock. As soon as the door opened, we were shot straight toward the freighter's cargo door. Soaring through 20 meters of space, I crashed hard into the cargo door and quickly maglocked to the ship. The Wookiee, Gretzmark, roared into the comms and began planting a series of small explosives around the door. The rest of us inched away from the impending explosion. The charges detonated in sequence and the door flew off behind us. We climbed our way into the cruiser, maglocked to the floor. The slicer, Maxton, was up next. He peeled open the panel of the door control and held out his hand. A bit grotesquely, his fingertips flipped back to reveal mechanical prods which he plunged into the open panel. With some effort, he managed to power the door independently from the powered down ship. The door slowly slid up about a quarter of the way to avoid drawing any attention to us. We crept into the next chamber, the cargo bay. As expected, the ship was full dark. Through my helmet scanner, I could tell most of the vast room was empty, but there were still some troopers nearby. Through the comms, I whispered to the crew. We've got about a half dozen in here with us. Looks like most of the guards are probably deeper in the ship, prepping for when the power comes back on. Wait here. Move on my signal. My turn. It was an easy return to form to move through the ship. Even in the darkness, I found my way to the nearest trooper. In my most commanding voice, Trooper! What are you doing here? I've been looking for you. The trooper, clearly a bit phased. Sir, this is my post. I'm to guard the cargo. New orders, rookie. We've enough defense for the regular stuff. We need to ensure the high-value cargo secure. I've received no new orders, though. Our comms are out from the storm, laser brain. I chastised and wrapped his helmet with my knuckles. The captain sent me here personally. We need to check on the Kyber now. You want a commendation or an airlock? I could hear the trooper snap to attention as he said, Yes, sir. Let's go, then. I commanded, encouraging him to lead the way. He led me to the far wall of the cargo bay, but away from the door leading deeper into the ship. Toward the corner, he started knocking against the wall, searching... Soon the thumping turned hollow. Found it, sir. Give me a hand. I came up next to him and ran my hands along the wall till I found a small recess. Together, we pulled the panel from the wall and let it drop to the floor. 
Just through here, sir. Great work, trooper. Now let's secure that cargo. I followed the trooper through a false wall into a narrow corridor and down a small flight of stairs. We came to a small open space. I sent a few short pings through my comms. It was time. Seems clear. The trooper was cut short by the stun of my blast rifle. As his body dropped, I heard the faint sound of bodies thumping above me. A few moments later, my companions joined me in the hidden cargo hold, dragging the bodies in tow. The Wookiee dragged three and gave a barely restrained roar. With the only witnesses now subdued, we turned on our torches. Lined against the wall were three metal crates, each a little larger than an astromech. Falask cracked one open and held a small crystal in the air. Shining in the torchlight, it had the unmistakable glimmer of Kaiba. The Trandoshan smiled and hissed, something that might have been a laugh. No time, I said and yanked the gem from his hand, setting it back in the crate and locking it. Did you close the panel behind you? I asked the group. Of course, Maxton replied coolly. And sealed it with plasteel foam? Yes, Dad, we know the plan. Maxton jabbed. All right, Gretzmark, set the charges. I commanded the Wookiee. The Wookiee growled and began placing charges on the floor, as far away from the crates as he was able. When he was done, he let out another roar, and we all backed up the staircase aways. I sunk down low and gripped one of the stairs tightly. Wymora, are you in position? I called through the comms. All set! She chirped. The Wookiee tapped his detonator and... The charges blew and there was a perfectly calculated chaos as the air poured from the room and sucked the crates through the open hall. Let's go! Now! 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 I called and let go of the metal tread. My body was sucked towards the hole, flinging wildly. Just as I fell through, I activated the mag locks on my gloves to stick to the outer hole. I saw Maxton coming next and caught him with one hand. He reached up with the other and maglocked to the exterior just behind me. Gretzmark and Falask flew through one after the other, hurtling past us. Behind me, I saw the ship we came in on, with a small addition of a great arm protruding from the top of the ship. The arm split into six smaller ones, spread wide with the nets stretched between each arm. In the net sat three small crates and, soon, the bodies of Falask and Gretzmark. With any luck, Maxton and I would make it as well. Let's close this up, Maxton! I shouted, unnecessary with the comms, but the thrill of the moment and all. Maxton passed me a canister of quick-fill plasteel from his pack, then pulled one for himself. I maneuvered to the other side of the hole, and we covered it with the foaming sealant. In moments, it expanded and hardened. It was an eyesore and would surely be noticed once the freighter made it to a hangar, but it would keep any automated alarms from sounding when the power returned. We disengaged our maglocks and pushed off, aiming for the net on our ship. Shooting through space, I couldn't help but smile. Everything according to plan. I landed in the net, maneuvered my way to the edge of it and pulled myself to the hull. As soon as we were out of the net, each of the small arms closed towards each other. Then the main arm retracted and secured the load of Kyber against the ship hull. I made for the door of the ship and crawled in. Looking in the hold, I only saw Flask. Where's Gretzmark? I shouted. He didn't make it. Missed the net by a, a meter at least. Hurry up and we might be able to get him before his oxygen runs out. I looked behind me and Maxton was just coming through the door. Let's go, Maxton! I called, and as soon as he stepped into the ship, I activated the door control panel. The door started closing and then... The familiar flash of red as a hail of blastifier soared past me, barely missing me. The bolt caught Maxton in the chest and sent him flying out the door, hurtling into space. No! I cried and drew my blaster rifle, immediately trained on the Trandoshan. The door sealed shut behind me. What are you doing? We were off clean! Why, Mora, punch it! Velask hissed, his blaster pistol still drawn. My body rocked a bit as the ship whirled into speed. Gretzmark didn't miss, did he? 
Gret's mark never misses. Why? We've got enough Kyber to live like kings for the rest of our lives. What was the point? Are you serious? That Kyber is going to the huts, and the huts will be that much stronger. You know what they can make with these three crates filled to the brim with these little gems? And what? You think they'll let us live? It won't take the imps long to realize they've been heisted. Then they'll track us down, interrogate us, and kill us. No, the huts won't let us away from this. They'll have us fed to the beast before we ever sniff a credit. We're taking the loot, we're going to the other side of the galaxy, and we'll never see a nasty hut again. We did the work. We keep the riches. The huts know you. You'll never be free of them. What would make you think they'll just let you go with all of this? Ah, the huts think they know us. Pistol still pointed at me. The Trandoshan started to change. Green and yellow scales gave way to soft brown skin and hair. His snout full of pointed yellow teeth sank back into the shape of a human. Then, just as easily, the dark skin turned green and the hair retreated and formed two long leku. Now he was a twi'lek. A changeling. Clever. You've been working for the huts as a Trandoshan, gaining their trust... Waiting for an opportunity like this. A clean getaway. And Waimora, I suppose she's a changeling too then? We're called Quadites. She chirped from the cockpit. Ooh, what do you say we put the blaster down, Cannon? We can just talk this out like civilized folk. Civilized folk? I don't think so. Panels I hadn't noticed before, high on the walls, slid away and mechanical arms sprung out, each with a blaster aimed at me. Come on, pal. You can put the blaster down, or we can put you down. I let out a sigh. I trapped the whole time. I let my rifle fall and clang against the floor. That's the right move, pal. The false Twi'lek said cheerily and set his blaster into its holster. What am I still alive for? You, Cannon, are not with the huts, and I only haven't killed you yet. If this plan seems amicable to you, we can keep working together. Or, uh, why Mora can drop you off and we can never see each other again. You don't know our real names. You don't know what we look like. I've got no problems letting you live. As long as you don't do anything stupid, of course. I sat down, peeled off my helmet, let it drop to the ground. I ran my hands through my hair and groaned again. I couldn't think of any way out of this. Flask took a few steps towards me, reached down for the helmet, offered it to me. What's it gonna be, soldier? I'll take my share and I'll be gone. I won't breathe a word. I don't want to work with you, but I'll not be running to the huts or the imps. I'll be tortured and murdered by either of them, as you say. It's a clever plan, Falask. I hope it works out for you. Just take me far away from here. No big cities. Somewhere open. Somewhere warm. I need a break. Well, it's a shame, trooper. You did a fantastic job back there. You're loyal, and you know much of the Empire. You'd be awfully helpful to us. But if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Not like I'll get anything but a blaster bolt to the brain if I try to force you. We'll take you somewhere nice. Or warm. Whichever comes first. Ponema was mostly covered in a harsh desert. The changelings dropped me in a large gorge a few miles from a small settlement. To my surprise, they gave me one of the crates of Kaiba and helped me load it into a small cave in the rock. The next day, I left my armor in the cave and made the trek to the settlement. 
I needed to make a good impression with the locals and didn't think it wise to show up in full armor. The sun was hot and the sand made for difficult hiking. I liked it. This would be a fine place for a man like me to die. Once I could see the settlement in the distance, I pulled out a pair of macro binoculars and took in everything I could. It was larger than I expected, ten or twelve domed structures made of stone. The largest of the bunch was surely a cantina. A few of the smaller ones grouped together and seemed to form a sort of bazaar. The others seemed to be living spaces. Deciding it was safe enough to approach, I made for the bazaar. Between the group domes was a cooking pit, where I found a mid-aged, slender but strong, human woman stirring some sort of grey soup in a large kettle. She caught my eye, smiled, and motioned a bowl towards me. She was a bit severe, but her deep brown eyes glistened and radiated pleasantness. You look hungry, stranger. She offered warmly and ladled some soup into a clay bowl, reaching it out towards me. I don't have any credits, I told her, eyeing the soup and only then realizing how hungry I was. We don't really do that here. Take it. She pushed the bowl into my hands. I took the bowl and immediately brought it to my mouth and drank the whole of it at once. It was foul-smelling, but actually fairly pleasant going down. We sat together a while. Anara fed me until I couldn't eat anymore. She told me the history of Heba, the town we were in. Heba stood at the mouth of the gorge for decades, a rest spot for weary travelers. It was something of a safe haven, with no ties to any single government or crime syndicate. As such, they didn't deal in credits, but traded with each other and provided charity when necessary. There were some nomadic sort called Tuscans that roamed nearby, but they never raided Heba. In exchange, the people of the town would occasionally feed them and allow them to rest there. Anara told me a bit about herself. Her father was a Mandalorian warrior who quietly eloped with a Coruscantian emissary. When her pregnancy began to show, they fled from Mandalore to find somewhere, Ponima, they could raise the child, Dia, away from violence. The next year, they were blessed with another daughter, Anara. Some fifteen years later, the parents were swallowed by an enormous sandworm when they were on a longer trade route through the open desert. The sisters, unable to fend for themselves, made for the town of Heba. They were welcomed and soon became contributing members. Anara met and married a human called Tarmok. Anara never asked me where I came from, which I was extremely grateful for. It seemed unlikely she knew I was a clone, or that there even were clones. As the sun began to set, I offered my deepest thanks and said goodbye. She filled the skin with water for my trek and told me I was always welcome to return and that I should have dinner with her family. I spent four or five years living peacefully in my cave, making the occasional trip into Heba to trade my hunted kills for clothes, blankets, medicine, booze, cigarettes. In that time, I traded away the Bantha's share of my kaiba too. It was nearly worthless here, seen only as a precious crystal to be used for ornamentation, though I did sometimes make journeys across the vast desert to the other faraway trading posts that had a slightly better sense of its value. In these trades, I was able to secure a speeder bike, which made transporting heavier cargo possible. I didn't go anywhere more than once each year, for fear of being followed and bringing raiders to Heba. I took to calling my cave home the bunker, and I spent most of the first few years expanding its depth in the stone, then fortifying and outfitting it with some essential electronics like a long-range comm to monitor for imperial chatter, motion sensors, and, of course, auto turrets. I grew very close to Inara, her husband Tarmok, and her sister Dia. We cooked and played games together in their home. As the population of the town slowly grew, we repaired and built more stone huts. The well started to run dry, so we built a small moisture farm that was maintained by the people of Heba. Once, Anara, Tarmok, and I spent the better part of the day drinking and playing sabak in the cantina. 
As night came, Sandoval, the beefy crawl you toner of the cantina, told us he was headed home, but we were welcome to stay, provided we locked up for him. Soon Tarmok announced he was headed home, but Anara wasn't tired and wanted to watch the stars a while. We brushed the stone counter and tables clean, then locked up. We climbed to the top of the wide dome and laid on our backs watching the stars while puffing on cigars. She told me, You know, sometimes I wonder what's happening out there in all that space. So many planets with so many people. They fight and they steal, but they must also love. They win, they lose, they die. What do they feel? Are they happy? I know they don't all live like us. I've heard many stories, but I've only lived mine. Of course. They do all those things and more. I had told Inara a few stories from my past, but never revealed the means of my birth or how I was used. I told her of Suresh, but never of 66. She never did more than gentle prodding, and I love that about her. We gazed at the stars, and in between puffs of the cigar, I felt her hand brush against mine. My heart pounded the way it sometimes did when we were alone. I turned my head to face her, but she was still staring into the open sky. I closed my hand around hers and held it, my thumb tracing the outline of her knuckles. Slowly, she turned to look at me. We grinned at each other and laughed quietly. I didn't let go of her hand, though. When she stopped laughing, she moved her head a little closer, just barely. My heart beat even faster, and before I could talk myself out of it, my lips were pressed against hers. She might have been shocked for a moment, but she was receptive. We laid atop the dome, kissing beneath the stars for what felt an eternity. I tried to move closer to her, to wrap an arm around her, but lost my balance and rolled off the dome. I hit the ground with a thud, dust comically rising up in a cloud around me. I heard her giggling from above before I saw her. She asked if I was okay, then slid down to meet me. She held out her hand and pulled me up. Her chocolate eyes locked onto mine. She grabbed my hand and led me into the cantina. We made love in the dark, on the ground behind the counter. When we were finished, we poured ourselves another drink and didn't speak of what we'd done. Then we made love again. I walked Inara to her home on the other end of town, then rode my speeder back to the bunker. A decade later, Anara and Viego were at the bunker. The boy was just past nine years and a near-perfect reflection of his mother. Anara promised Viego I would take him for a ride on the speeder bike. I took my seat on the bike and pulled him up in front of me, his legs just long enough to straddle the seat. I held him tight with one arm, then powered the bike on. I almost forgot, I said, and reached behind me for my trooper helmet, placed it over the boy's head. It'll keep the sand out of your eyes, kid, and it looks pretty cool. I looked to Inara at the mouth of the bunker. She was beaming at us. Be safe, boys. We'll be back in a few, I told Inara. I kicked the accelerator and the bike launched forward. We sped through the gorge and into the open desert. In the distance, I saw a large shape accompanied by a cloud of dust. I want to show you something cool, I yelled so Viego would hear me. Hold tight. We made a wide arc towards the figure approaching from behind. As we got closer, I pointed towards it. Viego, 
That's a sandworm. Extremely large, extremely dangerous. Let's get closer. We closed the distance from behind until we were riding parallel to it, its monstrous form keeping us in shadow. Then the beast stopped faster than I would have guessed and sank beneath the sands. We soared past it. I could hear the boy laughing, completely fearless. I turned the bike back towards the bunker in the gorge. Then I heard the sands shifting just behind me like an underground hurricane. I looked behind me just in time to see the maw of the beast cresting the desert floor, throwing sand 30 meters high. Viego, hold on tight! Don't look back, and don't tell your mother anything about this! I cranked the bike to full speed, but the worm was closing the distance all the same. I made a tight corner, then rode directly towards the beast, launching the bike up and over its body. The worm tried to make the turn, thrust its maw toward us, snapping its ring of teeth together. I felt a rain of slobber, disgusting as anything I could imagine, but we were alive. This seemed enough to convince the sandworm it wasn't worth chasing us, and we made it to the gorge without further issue. I loosened my grip on the boy and slowed the bike as we approached the bunker. I pulled up to the opening and plucked the boy from the bike and set him on the ground. I peeled the helmet off Viego, knelt down to his level and rustled his shaggy hair. Remember, do not tell your mother about that, I laughed, then headed into the bunker. Anara was in the closest corner, holding the only picture I had. Anara held a young Viego in her arms in the center with Tarmok and I on either side. Just behind us was their home. Dia sat at the top of it. Do you remember that? She turned quickly, hadn't heard me come in. Of course I do. Just a couple years ago, Dia made dinner, and I beat you and Tarmok at Sabak. And then I beat you two more times. I smiled. Yeah, well, you'd stop inviting me if you never win, I said. Her smile dropped, and those deep brown eyes narrowed and bored into mine. I could feel her piercing into my soul. Cannon, you are part of this family. You're always invited. Of course. What do you say I give you two a lift back home, huh? I'm sure Tarmok misses you. We piled onto the bike, Viego in front and Nara behind us, her arms wrapped around me. A tight fit, but not unpleasant. By speeder, it was only a few minutes into Heba. As soon as we made it past the mouth of the gorge, I knew something was wrong. Dark smoke billowed into the otherwise pristine blue sky. I slammed on the brakes, fishtailing to a stop. I lifted Viego off the bike and set him on the ground, then twisted to face Inara. Get off, now. Head back to the bunker. She looked surprised, maybe a bit scared. I don't think I'd ever commanded her like that before. She swung her leg over the seat and stood with the boy, hand on his shoulder. She turned to Heba, seeing the smoke, understanding washing over her face. They started running back towards the bunker. I cranked the accelerator and the bike lurched forward, then settled lower as it stabilized. I raced to the center of town and leapt off the bike. I pulled a small blaster pistol from one of the saddlebags, readying myself. Almost every dome in sight was smoldering, and where there wasn't ash and smoke, there was the unmistakable sign of blaster fire. Looking around me, I quickly estimated there were at least 20 charred bodies and another 10 bloodied and riddled with holes. It was a raider ambush then. Show yourselves! I shouted, whirling around, desperately trying to catch a glimpse of the murderers. I ran to Inara's hut. A small wave of relief hit me as I approached the unscathed dome. I raced down the few stairs, pistol drawn, and swept the house. Everything was upturned and thrown to the ground. The raiders had made quick work of this place. I heard a creaking behind me and spun around, aiming the pistol towards the table I had eaten so many meals at. The circular bench seat around the table was lifting up and two arms reached out. A voice from inside the bench wailed. Don't shoot! Please! I have nothing! Please don't kill me! It was Dia. I holstered the blaster and pulled her out. Dia, what happened here? Cannon, I'm so glad to see you. She sighed and sat down on the bench seat. They came out of nowhere. 
They just started firing. I saw them from the window and I just hid. There were so many of them. I put a hand on her shoulder and said, It's okay, dear. It's okay. We're... I'm going to find them. Where's Tarmok? I don't know. He was out at the moisture farm. That's where I heard the first shot. Cannon. They came and they just started firing. I never even heard them ask for anything. We would have given them anything they wanted. They were taking all those little crystals you gave us. I heard them. That's what they were after. Okay. I need you to come with me. All right? Right now, though. Let's go. I squeezed her shoulder and prompted her up. I led her to the speeder and we raced to the bunker. As we approached, we were met with the sight of Anara holding a blaster rifle, defending the entrance. Listen, dear, I need you to get off the bike, and I need you to stay in the bunker with your sister and Viego, okay? Come on now. I walked with her to the cave opening, desperately avoiding Anara's eyes. Cannon, what happened? Anara's voice was trembling. There were tears in her eyes. Viego emerged from the cave, wearing my helmet. Raider attack. You need to stay here. Keep that blaster, but you all need to stay inside. I was inside the bunker now, flipping a series of switches to activate the auto turrets mounted above the mouth of the cave. Anara was holding Dia, begging us for answers. I couldn't hear her. I was opening the crate that once housed a mound of Kaiba. Now there remained only a fistful of crystals and my long disused laminate armor. Certainly I didn't don it as fast as I once might have, but I was fully dressed in moments. From a shelf carved into the stone, I pulled as many grenades as would fit on my belt, then slung a disruptor rifle across my back. I stepped to Viego, took a knee, lifted the helmet from his head. I pressed my head to his and whispered to him, I'll be back for you soon, okay? Just stay here. Listen to your mother. I'll be back for you. I stood and looked towards the women. Stay inside. Those auto turrets are activated and they'll fire on anyone who isn't me. You're safe here, understand? Anara, I'm going to make this right. I pulled the helmet on, relishing the familiar and satisfying click as it set in just right. I boarded the speeder and raced to the Heba moisture farm. Bodies littered the blood-soaked sands. In the center lay Tarmok, nearly unrecognizable from the blast bolt fired directly in the center of his head. I'll be honest, I hardly remember what comes next. I mounted the speeder and followed what remained of the raider's tracks in the sands. After a few miles, my helmet scanner was able to pick up some heat signatures in a cave a mile or two off. As night fell, I parked the bike and climbed the crest of a large sand dune. Through the scope of the disruptor rifle, I saw five or ten raiders. Not Tuscan, they were mostly human with a few aliens among them. It seemed they were relishing in their victory, drinking and dancing around a fire. I fired several shots and several bodies dropped. As bodies dropped, more raiders appeared at the mouth of the cave, and I dropped them too. When no one else appeared, I checked my helmet scanner again and picked up another heat signature. I rode the speeder closer to the cave, then warily approached on foot. I plucked the pin from a grenade and tossed it into the cave, the sound of rocks tumbling to the floor nearly deafening me. I pulled my blaster pistol and climbed over the rubble. A few wild blaster bolts sailed past me. They were coming from low on the ground. The heat signature was close, so I strafed to the cave wall and crouched down. No blaster fire came. After a moment, I launched my body past the remaining rubble, pistol trained toward the heat signature. I nearly landed on top of the Twi'lek Raider, who I now saw was pinned under the rubble, squirming and pointing her blaster at me. We fired at the same time. She caught me in the shoulder, but it was a low-power blast and didn't make it past my laminate. I had fired several shots into a chest, ending her quickly. I did another quick sweep for remaining heat signatures. There were none. As I was leaving, I saw the Twi'lek pinned beneath the rubble had changed. The soft, long, crimson-skinned face and Leku were gone, replaced by that of a pale, green, and gaunt humanoid I wasn't familiar with. In my frenzy, 
I overlooked what this must have meant. In this galaxy, coincidence should not be taken lightly. I returned to the bunker as fast as the speeder would take me. The sisters and the boy were waiting for me inside. I told them it was over. We would stay here for the night. The next morning, we returned to Heba. Anara suggested that Dia stay with Viego in the bunker, but I told her it was important for them both to see the way the world, all worlds, are. There were precious few people, no more than ten, who remained alive. They had either hidden or were not in town when the raiders came. They thanked me for my act of revenge. We counted our dead and we wept for them. When we came to the farm, Viego beat at Tarmok's chest, begging him to wake up. Nara sobbed and pulled her son away. We organized a mass funeral pyre past the farm. Nara led a beautiful ceremony. I set fire to the bodies. The remaining townsfolk found shelter in the unburned domes. Anara, Dia, and the boy came to the bunker with me. Over the next few days, we focused our efforts on cleaning and rebuilding, scavenging through the burned remains for anything that could be reused. Our water reserves were running low. The wells had run dry long ago and the moisture farm was largely in shambles. I took what remained of my kyber and made the long trip to a trade outpost a few hundred miles away. Fortunately, I was able to trade the crystals for enough machinery to support our reduced population and a trailer to haul them in. Not wanting to be swallowed by a sandworm in the dark, I spent the night there. Returning to Heba took nearly twice as long with the heavy load the speeder bore. I unloaded the machinery at the farm, and I made my way into town to assist with the reconstruction efforts. Dia came running to me, tears streaming. Her face was pink and bloated, one of her eyes puffy and dark and red with coagulated blood. He took them. Cannon, he took them. I tried to stop him. I took her shoulders in my hands. Dear, what do you mean? Took who? It was some sort of lizard man. He came on a speeder. He took Anara and Viego. I tried to stop him, but he hit me. He told me to give you a message. I stiffened. My heart was exploding a thousand times a second. How long ago? Where did he go? Did he hurt them? Dear, what is the message? I was scattered, anxious. I think I shook her, needing answers faster than I could ask for them. I don't know. It happened so fast. I... It just happened. I think not even an hour ago. He had a blaster. A big one. Like yours. He said, tell Cannon, go home. What does that mean? What did you do? The pieces clicked into place and I saw the bigger picture. The changeling. The Claudite. That I left in the rubble. That was why Mora, the pilot from so long ago. Dear, stay here. Round everyone up. Tell them to hide. What will you do? She asked, her hands grasping for mine. It's a trap. He'll kill you. And what choice is there? If I don't go, he'll kill Anara and my... and Viego. Dear, I deserve death for the things I've done. If it's my life for theirs, well, that's just no choice at all. I took her in my arms, held her tight. Dear, I mean to come back, but if I don't, you tell Anara that I... No, just... just tell her thank you. Tell her I'm sorry. I mounted the speeder bike and raced towards the bunker, the only place I've ever called home. I wasted no time scouting. If Flask wanted me, he'd have me. An easy trade. I pulled the blaster pistol from the speeder's saddlebag and approached the entrance. Why hadn't I armed the auto turrets? A foolish move that might prove my downfall. The bunker wasn't lit. I shouted to the darkness. Flask! I'm here! I'm the one you want, so take me! Only my echo in response. I crept deeper into the belly of the bunker, 
Through the narrow twists and turns I'd carved long ago, around a final bend was a flicker of light against the wall. I called again. Flask! Come on in, clone trooper cannon. We've been waiting. I reached the corner, back pressed to the wall. I quickly spun past the corner, blaster instantly trained on the face of the Trandoshan before me. My eyes darted around the cavernous space I once used to meditate, not that I ever made a habit of it. A small, round space with four people. Anara and Viego were both on their knees, each with blasters held to the back of their heads. A stout, lightly armored man held a blaster pistol to Viego. The false Trandoshan form of Falask held a slim slug thrower to Anara. Falask wore the same duster and wide-brimmed hat, though more weathered, that I remembered him in from my apartment on Skandara. I felt the barrel of a blaster against the base of my skull. How did I miss someone on my way in? Sloppy. Stupid. My jaw clenched and I spit out. What are we doing here, Falask? You want me? Take me. The changeling licked his lips. You killed my sister, you clone bastard. You took everything from me, and I'm gonna take everything from you. She... You raided Heba. You killed nearly everyone, set fire to the place. Why, for Kaiba? Last time I saw you, you had two full crates. Yes, Cannon, we did. And we were careful. We fenced it slowly, spread it out. We lived well for years. But the Empire, they've been collecting it. Anything they can't mine or buy, they stole. We were sold out by our fencer. What remained of the Kyber, we left. Maybe they wouldn't chase us if they had their prize. And they didn't. But we weren't about to live like scum again. No, we were far past that. I was disgusted. Between clenched teeth, I spat. So you were sold out, and you came after me, what, 15, 17 years later? Well, we figured it was a good starting point anyway. Last time we saw you, you intended to die here. We thought you might have. We didn't know exactly where you were, though. Didn't exactly keep track, you know. We had the planet right, though. The first place we checked had a tidy little store of those precious crystals. It wasn't hard to get a beat on you from there. Why, Mora and I, we watched you from a distance. Even through the binox, we could see the kyber in wind chimes, necklaces. One of you made a doorknob out of it. A doorknob, Cannon. Do you understand how valuable kyber is? What people do for it? What people can do with it? A doorknob. <sighs> Simply amazing. We hired some raiders from the nearest trading post. They told us you were a peaceful lot. They were reluctant to join us. Of course, that pretty much went away when I told them what a single gram of kyber was worth. I'll tell you though, Cannon, it was never personal. It was obvious you'd run through just about everything you had left of the kyber. Waimora told me anything you might still be holding, you deserve to keep. After all, you never did sell us out. She convinced me, so we made sure the raid happened while you were away. She went with them to ensure they didn't go past Heba to your precious little cave. Waimora and the raiders did their job, killed everyone on sight, upturned every inch of your little huts, stealing every glimmering little piece of kyber they could find. And that's where the trouble started. 
I stayed back with two of the raiders, these two, to make sure the ship wasn't snatched. I wasn't far from the hideout, had eyes on it. Just as we were going to join them, you came in like some sort of wannabe hero. You slaughtered them. It was easy for you. And then you left. I went to Wymora. The only thing I had left in this world. My only family. She was still warm. And my blood boiled. I couldn't stand to see her the way you left her. I blew the cave to bits. My sister entombed on this backwater hole because of you. You don't know what it's like to lose everything, Cannon. You were brewed up in a test tube. You sped through childhood and murdered anything that looked at you wrong. That's your legacy. That's your great claim. That's your shameful debt. I'm here to collect. Anara was quietly crying, her head down but eyes locked on mine. The boy looked terrified. He made no noise, but his head was low. Eyes shut tight, and he covered his ears with his hands. I remember wondering if that might be a blessing. I'm gonna let you choose, Cannon. Which one should die? But I'll tell you, if I don't like the answer, I think we'll kill them both. You know, we might just kill you all, really. But why don't you choose who goes first, and we'll go from there. Everything happened so fast, but it was like slow motion for me. I still see it in slow motion, even now. Anara threw her body towards Viego, shouting, No! Not my boy! By the time her body landed, Flask had fired a metal slug into her shoulder. I dropped my weight, ass to the floor. I fired two quick blasts to the raider holding Viego. He fell back, limp against the cave wall. The raider behind me fired a shot that just barely sailed over my head and blasted into the stone wall. I fired a shot straight above me, into the head of the raider leaned over me. Anara screamed as Flask fired another slug, sinking into her from behind. Flask turned the gun to me, fired into my wrist. Blood spewing, I dropped the blaster. I swung my body and reached for the blaster with my left hand. Flask was on me almost before I moved. His boot pressed hard on my wrist, inches from the blaster. He pointed his pistol at me. You will watch, Cannon. You will pay your debt. The weight on my wrist shifted. Flask fell back and hit the ground hard. I scrambled to my feet and scooped his gun before he could even think to reach for it. Standing over him, I aimed his slug thrower at his face, then looked to Anara. She was still slumped on the ground, barely moving. Maz drifted to Viego. The boy held his late captor's blaster pistol limply in front of him. He had shot Falask, and he saved my life. I looked back to Falask, kicked his head with my boot. You shouldn't have come here, Falask. So worried about huts and Imperials. But now... You die by the hand of a boy and a clone. I fired into his face until there were no bullets remaining. Even then, the hammer clicked several times before I stopped. I enjoyed killing him. His body began to morph into his true pale green, gaunt, clodite form. His face was unrecognizable, just as they left Tarmok. All at once, the heat of battle swept away. I dropped the gun, then ran to Inara, dropping to my knees. I took her in my arms, lifting her inches from the ground. Viego dropped the blaster and came to us. Nara, you're okay. Please. Please stay with me, Nara. I can get you help. I can- Cannon. She cut me off with a wheezing whisper. It's too late. It's too late. Will you take care of him, Cannon? Please. Mom? The boy's hands were on her face. 
Mom, are you okay? Anara's head turned a bit to Viego. With a great deal of effort, she raised a hand to his cheek. Her eyes were wet, and she smiled. She gave a quiet, final sigh. Her hand dropped from the boy, and she was limp in my arms. Over time, word spread of the hero of Heba, who single-handedly defended the town from a hundred raiders. A remarkable fiction, but I didn't speak of the event. Neither Dia nor Viego ever refuted the tale. As such, the town collected new residents faster than I'd ever imagined. Heba was likely the safest place on Ponema, from their point of view anyway. Dia raised the boy in their old home. I still visited them in Heba occasionally, but I found it painful to be around them. Every moment spent with them was a reminder of the woman I loved. A reminder of the hell I inflict on everyone I come into contact with. My past always catches up with me, yet it's never me who pays the ultimate price. I spent most of my time rebuilding and fortifying the town. I taught the townsfolk how to fire weapons and defend their homes. No longer would Heba rely solely on the goodwill of strangers for survival, though. Of course, that was the goal. As the population grew, so too did their needs. The hardly populated, harsh desert planet Ponemo was a poor source of heavy defensive ordnance and medical equipment, so I took to hopping to nearby planets using the Changeling's ship. This usually involved doing low-level heists or collecting bounties too small to be considered by the guild. I found a certain pleasure in these jobs. Working kept my mind from wandering. Working kept me from taking responsibility. Working kept my legend alive. I was never gone more than a week or two at a time. Three years from Inara's murder, I invited Dia and Viego to the bunker. They hadn't been there since that night. Viego was 13 now. Hardly a man, but more than a boy. Surely he'd been more than a boy since he shot his mother's killer. I served the best dinner I could muster. We all played cards together. Dia and I smoked cigarettes and drank. Just as the sun was setting, I handed my helmet to Viego and told him to take the speeder bike for a ride by himself, but be back soon. He was gone before Dia could protest. I lit another cigarette and offered one to Dia. Something on your mind, Cannon? You haven't hosted dinner since. Well, it's been a long time, huh? I forced a thin smile, then sat on the sand outside the entrance of the bunker. Dia sat down next to me. I took a long drag, exhaled loudly. I told her. Heba's pretty much self-sufficient. The townsfolk are armed. There's all manner of motion detectors and traps in the half-mile surrounding town. Auto turrets defend the new solar and moisture farms. They welcome travelers again. They trade. They're charitable. They're looking out for each other. They just don't need me to look out for them anymore. And... And you want to leave, yeah? This is some sort of last hurrah? Something like that. Yeah, I said, focusing my attention on the act of smoking. You miss her. You loved her. You wanted me to tell her that. Do you remember? You stopped yourself. But it was obvious. I gave a slow nod, still not looking at her. And what about Viego? He loves you. He looks up to you. You're his hero. He talks about you all the time. It's my fault his parents are ashes. It's my fault Heba was slaughtered. It's my fault this town had to pick up arms for the first time in its history. Listen, dear, I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I'm going to take the Changeling's old ship as far as it will get me. I need a break from this place, away from her memory. I've made some contacts the last few years. I think I can get a pretty steady stream of work out there. If not, maybe I'll go skim some algae for a while, huh? Picture that. She gave a brief chuckle, then her lips tightened and she asked seriously. Will you come back? I took her hand in mine and our eyes met. I hope so. I'm sorry about what happened. I wish I could take it back. 
I relive that night a thousand times a day. What's done is done, Cannon. We can only move forward. You need to move forward. What will you tell Viego? I sighed and dropped her hand, resting it in the sand while the other raised the cigarette to my lips. Well, I was sort of hoping... No, absolutely not. I'm not doing this for you. No way. She shook her head in disbelief. I waited for Viego to return. When he did, I caught up to him on the bike and pulled my helmet off of him. You have a good ride, kid, I asked him, forcing a lighthearted smile. Yeah, it didn't go too far. It went pretty fast, though, and I didn't fall off. Thanks for letting me ride it, Cannon. You know, I was wondering if you'd look after this bike for me for a while. I have to go away for a little bit, but you're a good kid, a good pilot, and I think you deserve it. There's no one else I'd trust with it. Viego was stunned. He seemed excited, but then realization washed over his face. Where are you going? I'm not sure. It's hard to explain, Viego. I've had a difficult life. I've made some difficult choices. Everyone does, but a lot of people got hurt because of my choices. Things I never intended to happen, but still my fault. I don't know if you can understand this yet, but I just need a little bit of time away from here. Viego swung his leg over the speeder, dropped to the ground, and looked up to me. Is it because what I did when I shot the lizard guy? I knelt down, put my hand on his shoulder, and shook my head. No, not at all. You saved my life that night, and you didn't have a choice. But those men, they were there for me, because of things that I did without thinking. You're so smart and strong, and your parents would be so proud of you. Your Aunt Dia is so proud of you. Viego, I am so proud of you. I need to leave for a while, but it's for me, not because of you. I need you to look out for these people, okay? And you'll have my comm channel. I'll show you how to use the long range if you need to get a hold of me. Viego nodded slowly, small tears forming in his eyes that he tried to casually wipe away before I noticed. Uncle Cannon? You'll come back if I call, right? If we need you? I wrapped my arms around the boy, held him tight against my chest, and lifted him a few inches into the air. If you call, I'll come running. I promise. Thank you for listening to Canon, A Fistful of Destiny Story. Written, edited, and produced by me, Chase Robinson. Additional mixing by Andrew Schaefer. Special thanks to Christine Anderson. With voices by Todd Aiden is the unnamed protocol droid, Maxton and Viego. Nick Fox is the barkeep and Zara Barraza Hut. Madison Gallagher is the landlord and stormtrooper. Bailey New as Dia. Chase Robinson as Cannon. Andrew Schaefer as Falask. Cat City Schaefer as Wymora and Inara. And that's everything. I just want to thank all of my friends, the cast, for helping. And I want to thank you, the listener, for listening. Because otherwise, What was the point?